Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, August the 14th, uh, 2022. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. To another edition of our program, this special edition of the Pan-African Journal. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll feature dispatches on the continuing confusion surrounding the national elections in the East African state of Kenya, where after one week, uh, no uh, victor has been declared. Fifteen people have been found dead on the border between the Republic of Sudan and Libya. We'll have details on that as well. A shipment of grain from Ukraine is said to be destined for regions of Africa where there are food deficits. And a fire at a Coptic church in Egypt has resulted in numerous fatalities and injuries. In the second hour, we continue our focus on Black August with the reexamination of the 1965 Watts Rebellion, which shifted the character of the African-American struggle against racism and exploitation in the United States. Finally, uh, we look at the public health situation on the African continent with detailed reports uh, from Africa Talk uh, on the monkeypox uh, pandemic and the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention based in Ethiopia. Uh, We'll have a briefing uh, from uh, that agency. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, We'll take a musical interlude uh, with the Afrisa International. Let's listen in. Mama no. 
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, we just heard uh, the music of the Orchestra Afrisa International, uh, led by the legendary uh, Taboule Harashru, uh, featuring the vocals of Mbilia Bell. And that is uh, music from uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo classic Pan-African music. Right now we want to move into the Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. These are just a few of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. In the East African state of Kenya, uh, the long delay uh, by the Independent Electoral uh, and Boundaries Commission in announcing the final verified results of the August 9th presidential election is starting to lead to confusion. There have been conflicting reports about the state of the vote count. The Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission uh, latest verified form, 34BS, shows William Ruto leading Ryla Odinga. Reuters reports that Ruto is leading Ryla with 52% of the vote in its nearly complete tally of forms 34AS, a Radio Africa tally of all forms. 34BS, provisional and yet to be fully verified by the IEBC, shows that Ruto received 50.36% of the vote compared to 48.88% for Ryla. The tally shows uh, that Ruto has won 126 constituencies with 7,152,655 votes, while Ryla Odinga has taken 146 constituencies with 6,942,708 votes, with 18 constituencies pending, excluding diaspora and prisons, a difference of 209,947 votes. The vote tally is available uh, at the uh, Kenya Star newspaper, and uh, they've been trying to track uh, the progress uh, of the electoral uh, count, as well as other publications uh, in Kenya as well as around the world. And you can read uh, this article about the uh, whole situation uh, in Kenya involving <clears throat> involving the elections that were held uh, one week ago today, where no definitive uh, results <clears throat> have been <clears throat> issued uh, in regard to proclaiming uh, who got the most votes, whether or not there has to be a runoff election. So we'll, we'll uh, stay on top of this story. In North Africa, Libyan authorities said yesterday they found at least 15 migrants dead in the desert on the borders with Sudan, the latest tragedy involving migrants seeking a better life in Europe via perilous journeys through the conflict-wrecked nation. The Department for Combating Irregular Migration in the southeastern city of Kufra said the migrants were on their way from Sudan to Libya when their vehicle broke down due to lack of fuel. The agency said nine other migrants survived while two remaining missing in the desert. 
There were women and children among the migrants, uh, but the agency did not elaborate on how many. It is also it also did not reveal causes of the migrants' death, but said they did not have enough food and water. And um, you're listening to uh, the Pan African Newswire segment uh, of the Pan African Journal. <clears throat> I'm your host uh, Abayomi Azikawe. They shipped back uh, in the Ukrainian Black Sea port though, on Friday was to begin loading up uh, with wheat for people who need uh, food in Ethiopia. It will be the first food delivery to Africa under a United Nations plan to unblock grains uh, that have been, uh, of course, trapped as a result of the conflict between Ukraine and Russia and bring relief to some of the millions worldwide who are on the brink of starvation. For months, uh, fighting in Ukraine and a Russian blockade of Ukraine's ports meant that grain produced in Ukraine, one of the world's key breadbaskets, piled up in the silos. That's according to the Western uh, accounts of this situation. Of course, Russia has a different perspective on what is driving uh, the current uh, food deficits. Uh, they say it's related to the draconian and unprecedented sanctions that's been filed against the um, imposed against the Russian Federation uh, since uh, February and even before. That sent uh, global food prices sky high, and it has led to hunger in Africa, the Middle East, and parts of Asia, and even in North America. In recent days, several ships carrying grain have left Ukrainian ports under the New Deal, but most of those ship shipments uh, were animal feed and went to Turkey or Western Europe under previous contracts. United Nations uh, spokesman uh, Stephanie Dujarak uh, said the ship named Brave Commander will carry its wheat to the Horn of Africa nation of Djibouti, uh, where it will be unloaded and sent on to Ethiopia. And uh, finally, uh, in regard uh, to uh, developments in Egypt, more than 40 people were killed in a blaze that broke out during a Sunday mass in a Coptic Christian church in a suburb of Egypt's capital of Cairo. That's according to church officials. The blaze started for unknown reasons at the Abu Safini church in the capital's northwestern working class district of Zimbabwe. President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi declared on his Facebook page, I have mobilized all state services to ensure that all measures are taken. Fire services later said the blaze had been brought under control. The Egyptian Coptic Church reported 41 dead and 14 injured, citing sources in the Ministry of Health in a statement posted on its Facebook page. The prosecutor's office said it had opened an investigation and sent a team to the scene to establish the cause of the blaze. Coptics are the largest Christian community uh, throughout the entire region, making up at least 10 million of Egypt's 103 million people. Sisi, the first Egyptian president to attend the Coptic Christmas Mass every year, recently appointed a Coptic judge to head the Constitutional Court for the first time in history. Sisi said uh, earlier today he had presented his condolences by phone to the Coptic Pope, Teoadros II, uh, who has been the head of the Egypt's Christian community since 2012. Accidental fires are not uncommon in Cairo, Egypt. They have suffered uh, several deadly fires in recent years. In March of 2021, at least 20 people died in a blaze in a textile factory in an eastern suburb of Cairo. In 2020, two hospital fires claimed the lives of 14 COVID-19 patients. 
With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding uh, this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. Uh, The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, this uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, special worldwide radio broadcast, uh, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
the band Love, uh, from the classic album Forever Changes. Uh, that tune was entitled The Daily Planet. And uh, right now we want to move into our Black August programming. And, of course, uh, Black August is dedicated uh, to the remembrance, the commemoration, and the continuance uh, of the struggle of African people against enslavement, colonialism, neocolonialism, imperialism, racism, national oppression, and all forms of exploitation, oppression. Uh, so many things uh, historically have happened during the month of August. The arrival of Africans uh, from the area now known as Angola in August of 1619 to the British colony of Virginia. And, of course, uh, the rebellion of Nat Turner occurring in August of 1831. Uh, then, of course, the birth of the Honorable Marcus Garvey on August 17th. And then the Watts Rebellion of 1965, which was a monumental act of resistance. Uh, it changed uh, the formula uh, for the struggle for black liberation and total freedom inside of the United States. And uh, right now we want to look back on uh, Black August 1965. Dot org each week, American History TV's Real America brings you archival films that help tell the story of the 20th century. CBS reports Watts, Riot or Revolt, originally broadcast on December 7, 1965, documents the events of August 11 through August 17, 1965, when widespread looting, arson and violence in Los Angeles resulted in 34 deaths, over 1,000 injuries, over 3,000 arrests, and the involvement of several thousand California Army National Guardsmen. The hour-long CBS News program investigates the many reasons behind the events in Watts, often citing a report commissioned by Governor Pat Brown, which concludes that high unemployment, poor schools, poor living conditions, and police abuses were the root causes of community unrest. Up high. You can lift them higher than that, friend. Let's get them up there. First one drops her hand, dead man. Absolutely incredible scene. The gun battle in the middle of Broadway. The main dismal streets of Los Angeles. Small army of policemen, most of them carrying shotguns. National Guardsmen riding jeeps with 30 caliber machine guns. Bodies of several Negroes who have been shot already in this battle stretched out beside the curb. Acres and acres of broken glass, burned, gutted, and looted stores, offices. And now, this hunt, like something out of a bad war movie. A western, perhaps. Policemen on the rooftops, in the streets. They think now they've found the man they're after. That was part of the Civil War fought on the streets of Los Angeles one night this summer. Violence set off, according to some of the participants, by a history of ancient wrongs. I think it started 400 years ago. And things just kept building up, building up. And heat, one thing, and uh, poverty. People getting tired of being pushed around by you white people, that's all. 
You couldn't talk to anybody because there was nobody to talk to. You couldn't talk to the cops because they didn't want to talk to me. They wanted to beat my brains out. Just like they've been doing all the time. And the only way, the only way it seems that we can ever get anybody at any time to listen to us is start a riot. We got sense enough to know that this is not the final answer. Mm -hmm. right at the beginning. Governor, I hand you the report that's been prepared by your commission. Uh, we cannot, uh, Governor, uh, tell you any one particular reason why the riots took place in August and why they took place in Los Angeles. Tonight's CBS reports examines the question of what's. Was it a local riot or the beginning of a national revolt? What started it? What stopped it? Will there be another Watts? John McCone has just presented Governor Edmund Brown of California his investigating committee's report seeking the answers to just such questions. These findings are an integral part of what follows, a CBS report study of the principal events and causes of the nightmare in Watts. <laughs> International Business Machines, IBM presents CBS Reports. What's Riot or Revolt? Now, here is CBS News correspondent Bill Stout, who has covered the Watts story from the moment the rioting began. Three months ago, on this street in Los Angeles, California, violence produced all this. A local riot or a revolt? part of a national social revolution, a carnival of hoodlum lawlessness, or the product of a festering social illness. And most puzzling of all, if it was a riot, why did it happen here in the community thought to be least caught up in racial tensions? A Frenchman who looked at his own country's revolution 175 years ago left us with a comment which may give some insight. He said, the evils which can be endured with patience as long as they are inevitable seem intolerable as soon as a hope can be entertained of escaping them. In the past 25 years, more than 300,000 Negroes from other parts of the United States have come to Los Angeles in the hope of escaping evils they had endured with patience. But on the night of Wednesday, August the 11th, that patience ran out. It was the most widespread, most destructive racial violence in American history. White people driving through the riot area were considered fair game, whether young or old, men or women. Their cars were battered, the drivers stoned, kicked and beaten, and the cars were burned. The mobs might groan and curse in disappointment when a white got away, and then cheer like a football crowd when a car went up in flames. Okay. The burning and looting, the shooting and beating went on for nearly a week. Thirty-four persons were killed, all but five of them Negroes. More than 1,000 persons injured or wounded. More than 200 business places destroyed by fire. 700 more smashed, looted, and damaged. 
Negro merchants sought to protect themselves with hurriedly scrawled appeals. The cost in dollars, even now, is hard to estimate. Perhaps 50 million, 60 million, or more. Nearly 4,000 persons arrested. Shut it up and get out of that car with your hands up. All of you, the one in the back seat, too. Come on, get up. Get your hands up, I said. Drop that purse and get your hands up. Negro leaders blamed it on a variety of social ailments, poverty and unemployment, poor schools and bad housing, all of which add up to discrimination. But most of all, said the Negro spokesman, police brutality. And the mobs agreed. But the police were not the only targets. Firemen rushing about the city trying to control dozens of blazes at once were showered with rocks and bottles and sometimes found themselves under heavy gunfire. The mobs hated authority, but more generally, they hated all whites. And before the mobs finished, before they spent themselves, by the time the rioting had run its course, the police had been forced to plot their action over 54 square miles in the middle of the nation's third largest city. 54 square miles, more than twice the size of the entire island of Manhattan. Indeed, Harlem or South Chicago, where steaming, rat-ridden tenements are the raw material of riot, seemed the most likely to produce those northern explosions that were predicted in white America's anxiety over the Negro Revolution. No one expected the flashpoint of discontent to be in the sprawling, bungalowed 450 square miles of Los Angeles. Yet it did happen there, in an area holding one-sixth of the county's 523,000 Negroes. Watts is a ghetto, but not a slum, as the term is known in older cities. There are streets of trim, lower-middle-class homes, and there are squalid areas of condemned houses with people living in them. Two-thirds of the adults have less than a high school education. One in eight is illiterate. Of every ten homes, nine were built before 1939. One in five is deteriorated. Watts has the lowest average income rate in Los Angeles County. $4,000 per year, compared with more than $8,000 per year for the white community. Almost 60% of the Watts families receive some sort of welfare against an unemployment rate that holds around 30%. One of every three teenagers comes from a broken home. The school dropout rate is more than twice that of the city overall. Most residents are newcomers who joined the modern gold rush to California of the past 25 years. Many are newcomers from the most backward parts of the Deep South, poor and ignorant Negroes who have no skills to offer a big city employer, no desire for classroom learning, not even the knowledge of how to live in urban surroundings, often not even the knowledge of how to use plumbing. They crowd together, these backcountry refugees, a thousand new ones every month pouring into Los Angeles. And they find in the land of golden promise that there still are white lawmen, white merchants, white landlords. It began as many race riots have begun with the arrest of a Negro by white officers. Right here at this corner. In this case, two young Negroes were stopped by California highway patrolmen and charged with drunk driving. There was a scuffle, 
and a crowd gathered. The mother of the two, they are brothers, joined in. And she and another woman the crowd thought was pregnant were pushed and shoved. The highway patrolmen were on the scene 40 minutes, a period some suggested was overlong in the face of a gathering hostile crowd. The McCone Commission dug thoroughly into this event. It found no basis for criticizing the conduct or judgment of officers on the scene. But no one questions this was the incident, nothing more, the spark that lighted the fuse. In the background is a long chronicle of defeat and disappointment, of discrimination and Negro grievances, of pure hate for the white man. There was, for instance, in the spring of 1962, a gun battle between Negroes and police outside the Los Angeles Mosque of the Muslims, a sect built around the belief that all whites are evil, that complete separation of the races is the only hope for America. In that gunfight, one Negro was killed, 14 wounded. Some Los Angeles citizens believe the Muslim shooting so crystallized Negro feelings that from that point, April 1962, big trouble was inevitable. There were other humiliations distantly noted by whites but resounding in Watts like a slap in the face. Negro Catholics prayed as the head of the Catholic Archdiocese, James Francis Cardinal McIntyre, declaring Negroes to be better treated in Los Angeles than anywhere in the United States, laid down for his clergy the line that racial problems were to be treated as political rather than moral issues. A young priest, Father William H. Dubay, challenged the cardinal, insisting race discrimination is immoral and therefore a direct concern of the church. Negroes watched while the clergyman dispatched a rebellious and futile appeal to the Pope in Rome. All of us concerned with giving our Negro congregations positive leadership in their yearning for full protection under the law, equal opportunities for education, jobs, and housing, cannot reconcile the clear teachings of Christ and the Church with the restrictive and nullifying policies of the Cardinal. I urge you, therefore, to remove Cardinal McIntyre from office. Negroes watched, too, through the long political campaign of 1964, when the major issue in California, bigger even than the Johnson-Goldwater contest, was fair housing. State law requiring the sale of homes to any person able to pay, regardless of color, was under attack. White organizations, led by various real estate groups, collected signatures for a referendum which would repeal the law. Martin Luther King came to Watts to spell out the meaning of the referendum battle, but the great majority of California voters rejected law-enforced non-discrimination in housing, the majority telling the Negroes to stay put. The McCone Report cites that vote as a major factor adding to Negro resentment. And there were other factors, too. You might have a TV, they can see the nice things in other parts of the city, and, and uh, they're tired, they're hungry. They are more educated. They know what's going on in the world. They see millions and billions of dollars spent on rockets and the first one thing that I sent overseas to other countries. And here in their own country, you know, they're hungry, they're out of job. Finally, there was haggling over the poverty program. Indeed, the very day the riots began, this was the headline in the Los Angeles Times. In Harlem this past summer, poverty funds were used to give jobs and money to thousands of young Negroes. But in Los Angeles, not one cent was put into the poverty area. Despite all these aggravations and evidence of white indifference, Los Angeles' long history of freedom from racial strife 
plus the fact that it had weathered the troubled summer of 1964 without difficulty, had created a false sense of well-being, so that when the violence did erupt, its impact seemed many times magnified. Indeed, the supposed lessons of peaceful Los Angeles had been cited proudly to lawmen around the country by its chief of police, a man known for his integrity and the bluntness of his opinions. Thus, after the first night of violence, embarrassed perhaps and understandably edgy, Chief William H. Parker faced newsmen. What do you want the policemen to do? Do you want to mask them in there for what purpose? Are pinning everybody down or, or what? No, I'm simply asking you to explain what, what the thinking of the police is. I have no... Well, the thing is, the police said they have a city to protect. And they can't send all the men in the watch and allow all these, the rest of the 450 square miles to be open season to every every petty criminal and burglar in town. So this is the answer. Uh, someone like Dr. Martin Luther King should get down there? Uh, no, King doesn't. Uh, we've got local residents here. Cuba. King doesn't put out all the fires in the United States. You. There are some local Negroes here that are, le that are leaders in these situations. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, we would assume that they have some influence on them or they wouldn't be representing them. Now, those individuals are certainly in a position to go down there and talk to these people and tell them that this is inordinate and they shouldn't continue it. That Thursday afternoon, one of those leaders Parker referred to, the Reverend H. H. Brookins, with other ministers and politicians, black and white, called a peace meeting at a neighborhood playground. And I submit to you that we shall not see a Harlem or Rochester or New York. We can solve it. It is yet time. But Brookins and the others learned they themselves did not understand their people, did not know the intensity of their rage, and could not plumb the depth of their hate. Because I was on Avalon last night. See, and I'm going to tell you something. Tonight is going to be another one, whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 wait, wait. Listen, listen. See, they, we, have, we, the Negro people down here have gotten completely fed up. And you know what they're going to do tonight? They don't care. They're not, they not going they to fight down here no more. You know where they're going? They're after the white people. Now they after the white people, they're going to congregate. They're going to caravan out in Eaglewood, play their way and everywhere else the white man is going to stay. They're going to do the white man in tonight. And I'm going to... After that meeting, Brookins and John Buggs of the County Human Relations Commission, a group with a record of success in dealing with racial troubles, took their recommendation that there be less obvious policing of the area Thursday night to Deputy Police Chief Roger Murdoch. The police department indicated to us that they were going to run the city their own way and they would prove who runs the city of Los Angeles. Uh, Mr. Roger Murdoch's attitude was one, I would suspect, from a Jim Clark in Alabama. We are not in Alabama. We want to work with the police. We want to work with elected officials, not against them. When we returned to 118th Street after having talked with Mr. Roger Murdoch of the 7th to 7th Division, we had to report what we found. It was like lighting a fuse. Uh, they immediately said, well, all right, we told you that your leadership didn't amount to much. You see what they think about you. So now let us do it our own way. 
At this time, about uh, six police cars moved in, blowing sirens with about 500 people lining the streets. And it was just like an explosion, Bill. Everything just went haywire. The frustration of the Reverend Brookins and his associates goes far toward explaining the why of Watts as well as the how. Actually, from the quarrel over the performance of Negro leadership was beginning to emerge one of the great unpalatable truths of the riot that there were and are groups in the Negro community for whom nobody spoke. Most of the Negroes who hold elective office in Los Angeles stayed out of the area. But State Assemblyman Mervyn Dimely, a resident of the riot area, was there constantly. And he spoke the truth no one wanted to hear. Shall I relate to you an incident? About 4 o'clock Thursday, Friday morning, I went up to a group that was throwing bottles. And I said, listen, baby, let's cool it. And I says, man, where are you from, Baldwin Hills? I said, no, man, I live on Avalon. He said, well, you must be living in some big house. And I said, no, man, I'm with the people. He says, well, if, you, if you're with us, here, throw it. And he handed me the bottle. And I says, man, I'm for peace. He says, man, you're not for peace. You're with the man. The man, in this case, is the white man or the, or the police. And he says, look, man, we don't want to hear you. We don't want to hear Dr. Martin Luther King. We don't want to hear Dick Gregory. We don't want to hear uh, Brookings. We just want to talk with the men ourselves. Although the absence of effective Negro leadership was striking, the grasp of affairs by white officials, aside from Chief Parker, was also less than distinguished. As word of the shouted threat to do the white man in spread by word of mouth from the playground peace meeting, whites began to crowd the gun shops for weapons to defend themselves. The governor of California was in Greece, vacationing. The mayor of Los Angeles had found it necessary to keep a speaking engagement in San Diego Thursday. He flew to another such date in San Francisco after a Friday morning conference with Parker at which it was decided to call the guard if the riot worsened. The Commonwealth Club has advertised this speech for a long time. They have hundreds of reservations. And uh, so, of course, there isn't anything more especially that I could do in the next few hours. But uh, I'll go up and write back to keep my commitment. But if it hadn't been made for months, I certainly wouldn't go. The McCone Report does not criticize Mayor Yorty. It simply quotes, without comment, the reason he gave for his absence from the city. As Mayor Yorty left for his luncheon date in San Francisco, Chief Parker, the man in charge and the man on the spot from the beginning, now had hard words for the peacemakers he had earlier encouraged. That I'm not going to play games with, with well-meaning people who lack expertise. The difficulty is that the people who are getting hurt here are the police and innocent citizens, and the rioters are prevailing. The chief's concern deepened early Friday when the character of the rioting changed. The note in the police log says, 10 a.m., major looting became general. And in one shopping area three blocks long, thousands of Negroes stole everything they could carry and then burned what was left. What had been skirmishing before between police and hit-run Negro groups became a wholesale exercise in stealing and burning, with evidence of organized efforts in the manufacture and use of Molotov cocktails. The police estimate was that 3,000 people filled this street. Walking through it then, remembering it now, that estimate seems conservative indeed. On one point, Chief Parker was firm throughout. He was determined to ask for the National Guard if his men found the Negro explosion too much to handle. Parker had agreed with Governor Brown a year before on machinery to do just that. 
But the Guard had been called in a civil disorder only once in California history, an aircraft strike just before World War II. No one in high office wanted to be the man who turned bayonets against the people. At 10.50 a.m., however, Parker, declaring the situation out of control, asked for the National Guard. But it was 5 o'clock that Friday afternoon when Lieutenant Governor Glenn Anderson signed the proclamation. As the McCone Commission points out, Friday's delay in calling the Guard proved costly in property damage and perhaps lives as well. The Commission feels acting Governor Anderson hesitated when he should have acted. Further escalation of the riots possibly could have been avoided, says the commission, if a group of guardsmen available only a few miles away had been deployed, as they might have been, by mid-afternoon Friday. Then the guard came in. The first units mobilized and on their way at 7 p.m., the same time the first rioter was killed. A curfew was ordered, everyone off the streets by 8 p.m., and the brute force of 14,000 armed men finally broke the back of the riot. As the smoke lifted above Watts and the shooting died down, the soul-searching and blame-shifting began. Martin Luther King did not cut short his vacation in Puerto Rico, but went to Watts after the rioting and found the atmosphere less friendly than he might have expected. You all know my philosophy. You all know that I believe firmly in nonviolence. Or maybe some of you don't quite agree with this. I want you to be willing to say that. And sure, we, we like to be nonviolent. But we up here in Los Angeles were not turned out by the teeth. Number two, in the fact that our Negro community leaders are the, where are they? You, they are not here and they are not coming down because all right, that's right. They are selling us again, and we're tired of being sold as slaves. Don't burn, but smile. Wait a minute. All we want is jobs. We get jobs, we don't bother nobody. We don't get no jobs or tab Los Angeles, period. What do you think, uh, brother, about the police situation? Do you Police? The police are burning them up, too. Governor Brown, hurrying back from Greece and heeding, perhaps, the urging of King and other Negro leaders, found the riot area far from tranquil and the residents eager for an official ear. What does your husband do? I don't have a husband. We're, we're separated. Oh, you are. He's so in you're prison. All by yourself. You have to raise the poor children by yes. yourself? Yes. And how much do you get from the uh, Age of Needy Children program? Uh, $234 a month. And my house rents $80 a month. Are there any places to say we could get a job if we had a job if for I, it. If, if I could go to work, I'd be proud to go to work, and I, and, uh, and I and could make enough money to have somebody watch my baby. I'd love to go to work. You mean there were a lot of people hungry? They a bit hungry all the time. Like just two two or three days before this, all this happened, these people were start, just about starving them, waiting for the first till they got their check. Right. They yes, need yes, I mean, this was a continuing situation right. down yes. here. All the time. Well, I mean, can't, uh, right. um, don't they get the money from oh, welfare? Right. I mean, we have the aid and needy children. They need program. jobs. They need jobs. That's what they need. But creation of jobs depended in some degree on settlement of the city dispute with the federal government over administration of the poverty program. City Councilman Gilbert Lindsay, one of the Negro officials notably absent during the riot, hit hard at the poverty tangle. I am also ashamed that we, including I, squabbled and fought over the war on poverty program, which is almost scandalous. 
But Mayor Yorty denied that he or anyone else in Los Angeles had hung up the poverty program by playing politics. He blamed Washington. I have tried for months, as you know, to uh, end the senseless, senseless controversy. And so far as I know, this is the only large city uh, where the Office of Economic Opportunity actually used strong-arm tactics by cutting off our funds and publicizing the fact that unless we met their changing dictates, uh, that they would cut off the funds. And they have certainly helped to incite uh, people in the poverty area by these tactics. And in Washington, Sergeant Schreiber replied in kind. 523 cities, towns, and counties in every state of the Union have already organized effective local anti-poverty programs. Los Angeles, unfortunately, is the only major city in the United States which has failed to do this. Whoever was to blame, the political shuffling of the poverty program was only one factor. The larger causes of the Watts explosion we'll examine in just a moment. CBS reports Watts, Riot or Revolt continues. As the pickets marched and the tension in Watts continued, we asked Muslim leader John Shabazz if more violence is in prospect. I certainly believe that it will happen again unless uh, uh, some steps are taken to prevent it. And uh, the reason that I believe this and the reason this is voiced throughout the community and I have my ear to the ground in the community is that what has changed? There has been nothing done. Every grievance that was had by the people who, uh, called, who, who started this thing or who uh, took part in it, there has been nothing done to solve it. The only thing that was done was that massive forces were brought in to suppress the actual overt action. But there has been nothing done to solve it. In an effort to find a solution, Governor Brown announced the formation of an eight-man commission to investigate fully the causes of the disaster. John McCone, former head of the Central Intelligence Agency, was named chairman. The committee hearings have not been public, but the principal witnesses are known, and so are some of their views. Chief of Police, William H. Parker. A great deal of the uh, courage that uh, these rioters possessed was based upon the continuous attacks by their civil rights organizations upon the police, and the constant harassment, police brutality, police brutality, police brutality and the attempt of the police to accommodate to the situation that gave them the sense that we have these people on the run now. Uh, we don't have to really fear the police very much because uh, they're in a defensive position. Now, in addition to that, you have this, what I call, politically, or political pandering, where they're constantly trying to reach these groups for political balance of power by catering to their emotions. Now, you're dislocated. You're abused because of your color. Your, your progenitors were oppressed. You haven't been given the share of materialistic things you're entitled to. And you're trying to convince them, well, you're not well off, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to raise you out of this position of post-slavery to a position of economic uh, affluency. And, of course, many of these people in our present system are not in a position to set into the economy and become affluent unless somebody just hands it to them. Actually, and I, many uh, Negro leaders agree with me that Los Angeles is the finest place in the world for the Negro because he has the greatest opportunity here on a broad basis uh, than he will anywhere else in the world.
So you have this paradox where things are the best is where the, the worst riot occurred. And I think you have to go back to civil disobedience. You don't have to obey the law if you think it's unjust. In other words, you say, well, a, a certain law is unjust because it's a Jim Crow law. On the other hand, is the law unjust because I want a pair of shoes and they're in that store and I haven't got the money to buy them, so I can steal them. In fact, it was amazing that in that inquiry we had in the council, one of the councilmen said, well, why were these people shot? They were only stealing. So this, uh, they, they rationalized this. So with the civil disobedience, which erodes respect for all law, and that's been proven in this nation by now, it better have been, or if, if we haven't learned the lesson there, we never will. Do you think that what happened was simply a criminal manifestation of disrespect for law? Or do you see it as something related to the, the social and economic strivings of the Negro? I think all those factors are involved. I think that the, the most important recognition that we must give to this situation is that of the 600,000 Negroes who reside in the metropolitan area of Los Angeles, that the Watts riot involved less than 1%. And it is a mistake to group all of these people together because they don't deserve it and it would be inaccurate. In creating the situation, where was the failure? On the part of the city, the county, the schools? This, uh, I think, is one of the difficulties in meeting this, is that we're trying to find a failure other than the people themselves. And this is a very dangerous move because it, it serves to sort of sanctify their acts on the basis you did something because of something we failed to do. In the first place, a great number of those people came from areas in the country where they were much further dislocated, much more seriously dislocated than they are here. They came in and flooded a community that wasn't prepared to meet them, despite the fact that we got all this relief money going in there. We didn't ask these people to come here, and suddenly they want our total community to adjust itself to a, a small segment that has suddenly come in and taken over a section. I think this is unreasonable. No, I, I think that we are uh, almost sadistic in the way we're trying to punish ourselves over this thing without realizing what we have uh, destroyed is a sense of responsibility for our own actions. We have, a, we have developed a permissive materialistic society in where everybody is the victim of their environment, and therefore they're not really held responsible for anything, and if you can continue to live in that society, good luck to you. Parker's anger is shared by many, perhaps most, whites. His stand is supported by many of them, nearly 120,000 of whom have addressed letters and telegrams to him personally, 99% favorable. Parker believes disrespect for the law imperils the nation. But, says the Negro community, who can respect law that is divorced from justice? Tom Newsom is an attorney in the civil rights movement. During this entire incident, we've heard constant references to respect for law and order. And more particularly, what they mean is respect for law enforcement. Now, to really understand the problems of these people, you'd have to understand what law enforcement has meant to them for a hundred years. And we're talking about the white man's law enforcement that's responsible for many of their parents being chased out of the South on one pretext or another. The white man's law enforcement that has resulted in no one being actually prosecuted and convicted for the murder of Medgar Evers the murder of the three civil rights workers and the murder of Mrs. Lueso. Under those conditions, you can understand that the people aren't going to be reverent about law enforcement and the men who enforce the law. Over and over, Negroes repeat the charge of police brutality. 
one who had pressed a number of brutality complaints and one of the most successful attorneys in Los Angeles is a Negro, Leo Branton. We asked him about the police claim that brutality charges are fully and fairly investigated. Well, in theory, there are avenues of complaint open. But there are no meaningful avenues uh, uh, to redress the grievances of these people. I've tried them all, and I can say to you that there is no question but that under the present machinery as it exists and as it is being operated today, a complaint of police brutality by any Negro citizen goes almost completely unheeded because the instances of attention that are given to these complaints uh, are laughable. Now, it's been said that uh, people can bring complaints to the police commission. And the police commission is uh, the boss of the police chief and the entire police department. Well, this isn't so. I don't think that people would be agitating for an independent police review board if the existing police commission carried out the functions that it was intended to carry out. In the first place, you make a complaint before the police commission. Who investigates it on behalf of the police commission? Police officers. To this repeated complaint of the Negro community, the McCone Report responded by recommending that the police commission be overhauled to strengthen its authority over the department. The report rejected the idea of a civilian review board, but did recommend creation of a new post of inspector general, free of routine duties, outside the regular channels of the department, to investigate citizen complaints of police mistreatment and report directly to the chief. The report recommends also a vastly expanded community relations program to close the admitted breach between Negroes and police. Robert Richardson was a messenger for the Los Angeles Times when the riot began. His accounts of the rioting got him a cub reporter's rating and a job as the Times' first Negro reporter. Let me clear up something for you. When we speak of police brutality, we don't necessarily mean officers beating people as, say, they would do in the South with... Uh, whips or cattle prods. We mean brutality to a man's dignity. We mean uh, the uh, derogatory terms that are used uh, directed to a person. When a policeman can't tell a housewife from a prostitute, when you're walking down the street with your girl and a policeman comes along and has you stand against a wall with your feet apart and checks you out and calls down on you and asks you what you're doing out so late at night, you have to have an explanation for everything. This is what we mean by police brutality. People who have come out here from the South encounter another problem even more serious than uh, police brutality uh, and job opportunity and job discrimination and things like this. This is a problem of the, uh, the, middle, the resentment of the middle class Negro, of the poor Southerner who comes out here. The uh, middle class Negro believes that this, these people uh, lower their standards, bring down their educational standards and lower their, their uh, reflection as a race. Uh, completely. So there's one large vicious circle. The poor southern Negro is moving into this area. The middle-class Negro is moving into a predominantly white neighborhood. And the whites in that neighborhood are moving farther out. In other words, it's going around and around and around. And where is it going to end? I really don't know. Watts, riot or revolt, with more findings of the McCone Commission, will continue after this message. CBS reports, Watts, Riot or Revolt, continues.
Theirs, they say, is a different world about which white Americans have bothered to learn very little. Indeed, the first thorough study of Negroes and how they live in this country was completed only a few months ago. Our government, which conducts detailed surveys of everything from sugar beets in Colorado to social habits in Cambodia, had never before taken a close look at the 21 million Negroes of America. Daniel Moynihan, until this summer, Assistant Secretary of Labor, was in charge of the study and was staggered by it. Moynihan says the Negro family structure is collapsing, and we asked him the reasons. The first is, remember that American slavery was the worst slavery the world has ever known. We can't get that into our heads, because the standard of living in the slaves was high, perhaps. We don't think, we don't see how awful it was. We deprived them of the sacraments as Christians. We deprived them of the, any institutions of family life. We deprived them of any rights as human beings. There's a very long and complicated history, but we did. There's no other slavery like it in history. And there was no Negro family at all in, in the slave world. Secondly, segregation and the great humiliations of Jim Crow was a, was a brutal assault on the personal integrity of the Negro male. I mean, he was the man who took the brunt of it. Thirdly, urbanization uh, poured into the cities. The, don't forget, the Negroes of our time, because they're Americans, we don't see them as emigrants. And the Negroes in Watts were emigrants, just as much as the Italians or Irish or whatever who poured into the cities in the 19th century. And it wasn't a very pretty sight in New York in 191870 either, let me tell you. Uh, the families break up when they leave countrysides, rural peasant life, and sort of dump into slums. Fourthly, unemployment. We have had 35 years of disastrous unemployment and uh, for the Negro male. He has never gotten over the Depression. He had four fair years, fair to middling years in the Second World War, and maybe a good year in the Korean War, and that's it. It's getting better just recently. But by and large, it's been going on beyond the imagining in the white world. I mean, rates of unemployment, you know, teenage unemployment in the uh, white world, in the Negro world today, is almost 25%. Can you imagine that? That is a social crime. That's an outrage. There isn't a society in the world which will let 25% of the teenagers go unemployed. Uh, about a quarter of Negro families are headed by women. Uh, the divorce rate is two and a half times what it is. And all the, the, these, the number of fatherless children keeps growing. Um, and all these things getting worse, not better, over recent years. Uh, it's not a, not a matter of a bad situation that doesn't improve, but rather a bad situation that worsens. Got to get that clear. It's getting worse. How do you learn how to behave from your father and your mother and your older sisters, maybe, and the people around you? Well, supposing there is no father. Or if he is a father, he doesn't work. Um, where there is no education, where there's no, no sense of, of getting ahead. Where children are just brought up without any of that support which a family gives it. Then what do you end up with? You end up a cycle reproducing itself. A UCLA study published within the last two weeks examined the background of young Negroes arrested during the riots. It established the typical rioter as a 17-year-old boy a school dropout from a fatherless home living on a total family income of $300 per month. One such walking statistic is this young man, whose cool world is kept that way by occasional bouts with liquor and with drugs. 
On the nights of the riot, revenge was an added ingredient. Although he denied to the police any part in the looting and rioting, he took me on a tour of some of the places he said he helped to burn, as casual as a stroll in the park. What this young man had to say reflected a common attitude among the youthful rioters. I threw the firebomb right in the front window, right in the front window. A friend of mine went in the store towards the back and threw a firebomb in the back, and the place went up in flames. But it was pretty well uh, emptied by the looters and so forth. There isn't much left, is there? There is. Here's a burned-up shirt and so forth that could have been gotten, could have been used. But most things were taken out before you burned. As much as we could possibly give. Then we would decide to burn, and the cry in the streets was, burn, baby, burn. So Why would you burn out this kind of place? We decided to burn this store because we felt that this man hadn't been doing nothing but gaming on us anyway. When you say that this man was gaming you, jipping you, do you know that for a fact? This man and every other Jew up and down the street, other than in rummage sales owned by Negroes who do not have nothing in them. Why do you say over and over, uh, Jews around here? Do you feel that way about Jews? I will not only say Jews, it would be fair to say that I hate all whites, period, point blank. What else happened in this block? Well, after we had got what we had gotten out of these stores, we would have disposed of it, stashed it. Then we arrived back to get as much as we could possible. We decided to get this loan company up here, this pine shop where this white dog works there that gyps people. Matter of fact, he gypped me. I brought an $82 radio that I had bought and hadn't had over two months, and I bought it here, and it was in excellent condition. He, he gave me $7 for it. He wanted to give me 5 He gave me 7 Do you think that's why most people took part in the looting and the burning because of one grievance from some time in the past? Yes, from some grievance and some times in the past, regardless of whether it was relating from a pawn shop or going to a store or what have you, someone in a get even, such as I, because I call myself getting even by going in this store and taking whatever I could take out of it. And I got some pretty wonderful things out of this place. Pretty wonderful things. And I like it. And it was Sunday yes. when you were arrested, right near here? Yes. I was on my way to a friend of mine's house, and a police car circled this corner here, and uh, the officers got out of their cars and approached us at gunpoint and told us to put our hands up and immediately hit the fence like this. And at the time they lined us up, they held us at gunpoint continuously, and then this white police officer approached me and asked me, well, black nigga, when are you going to let us kill you? So I replied to him, uh, I'm not going to let you kill me because I'm no sniper or nothing. I'm not going to be out there doing any wrong, trying to, you know, put myself in a good position because I knew that these white people were mad that we were taking to the jailhouse, and I was... I asked them, what was I going to be booked on? And they couldn't tell me. They couldn't tell me. They didn't say nothing. All they did was rope me up for burglary and looting, and I was arrested in a residential area. As you can see right now, here, there's no stores, anything. There's nothing but houses. How long were you in jail? I was in jail a month, a solid month. It could have been longer, but I had a little money, and which helped me get out. So you bailed out? I, I didn't bail out. I beat my case completely. I had it thrown out of court. All charges dismissed. Think it's going to happen again? Uh, yes, I do think it will happen again, but under a different situation. It will be uh, better organized this time, and it will probably be more or less a surprise attack. I feel that it will break out unless the white man himself 
changes. If he changes and shows some type of other response to the way that he treats us around here, there will not be any right. Because these people around here are willing to accept anything good, anything good, anything negative and bad, they will respond to it. Because this is what they've been taught around here from teenage on up. They've been in gangs. They're 28, 29-year-old people that have been in gangs and have developed attitudes that they have developed behind the way that they've came up. And I feel definitely that this most likely and most probably will break out again. If this young man is the living product of the ravaged Negro family institution described by Daniel Moynihan, Stanley Sanders is evidence of what a strong family can produce. His father, Hayes Sanders, recently retired after 33 years as a city truck driver, raised his family in the Watts area. Stanley, his sister, and his brothers, one of whom was an Olympic heavyweight boxing champion, were born in this house. A Rhodes Scholar, the third Negro ever to be so honored, Stanley now is at Yale Law School, but he was home during the riots. What made the difference between you and between most of the other young men? I think the most important differences in my own life uh, were the influences from my family and, and the special attention that I got in high school. Uh, in the Sanders family, we were always encouraged to go on to the university, and we were always taught to compete uh, on any level with, with anybody. What is your feeling about the people who took part, particularly the young men? A lot of them must have been men you knew. Why did they do it, and what did they say about why they were doing it? Well, I think that the, my particular age group, uh, Negro, uh, male between the ages of, of 18 and 24, is probably the one most uh, distressed group in the United States as a country, certainly in the Watts area here in Los Angeles. Um, they are most likely to be unemployed, uh, in this particular area, uh, they're either high school dropouts uh, or high school graduates with, with very little uh, skills, very few skills. Um, and I think also uh, there's, there's a, the business of, of, uh, of South Vietnam and how this affects the draft and, and, and economic means. Um, I think all these combine, uh, combine to uh, to uh, produce a, a frustration on the part of the young men uh, in this particular area of the city. The thinking of the entire nation must be changed as the goals of the Negro community move from liberty to equality, says Daniel Moynihan. No group in our society is satisfied if for many, many years, for generations, uh, the, the competitions of life always end up with them as the losers. Now, equality isn't a demand that everybody live the same. That uh, flat level of existence, that's not the thing at all. What is true is a demand that, given one group of people, that you distribute success and failure and distinction and anonymity and affluence and poverty about the same way it's distributed in other groups. We've got to get men to work. You can't, a man can't run his family if he doesn't have a job. It just, just starts there. Is there any secret to that? I mean, do you have to have sociologists tell this country that? No. Uh, creating jobs for men is no secret about it. We know how to do it. We've just got to get it clear in our minds. Either we do do it, or we're going to spoil this beautiful country of ours. And that means spoiling those pretty white suburbs just as much as spoiling those, those nasty and ugly places like Watts. Moynihan speaks of the situation confronting our nation. The McCone Commission sought to answer questions about Watts. 
Was the riot planned? The commission finds no facts to support that conclusion, nor any evidence of communist activity. Did police brutality play a part in the outbreak? Yes. Some real incidents and some imagine, says the commission, are at the roots of the deep distrust between police and Negroes. Did Negro hooliganism and provocation play a role in the riots and in the mood that led to them? Yes, says the commission, and the little organization which fed the flames was led by gangs of angry young Negroes. Was it a revolt, not just a riot? Yes, in the sense that it was a formless, hopeless striking out against current conditions in the community. And can it happen again? So serious and explosive is the situation, says the commission, that unless it is checked, the August riots may be only a curtain raiser to what could blow up one day in the future. It is that very fact which accounts for the disappointment among some responsible Negro leaders. Dramatic proposals and immediate measures are needed, they feel, to calm those rioting Negroes for whom nobody spoke. Long-range plans to give job training to thousands of Negroes a crash program of schooling for Negro youngsters may guarantee the future, they say, but the need is desperate and the need is now. A crisis in our country, says the McCone Commission, and government alone cannot render a cure-all. Help from private employers, from labor unions, from Negroes themselves is essential in this emergency. We would conclude this report with these final lines from the Commission. What shall it avail our nation if we can place a man on the moon, but cannot cure the sickness in our cities. This is Bill Stout for CBS Reports in Los Angeles. Good night. CBS Reports has been brought to you by International Business Machines, IBM. CBS Reports, Watts, Riot or Revolt, has been filmed and edited by the staff of CBS Reports under the supervision and control of CBS News. Next Tuesday night, the CBS News Special Report, Where We Stand in Vietnam, an assessment of the impact of the mounting American commitment in Vietnam, combining the reporting and analysis of six key CBS News correspondents and the results of a special CBS News National Public Opinion Survey. That's Where We Stand in Vietnam, a CBS News special report, next Tuesday night at 10, 9 Central Time.
We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program for this week. Never liked nobody that's been mean to me. I've got a heart full of stone, and I hate the misery. Then you came along into my life, destroying me more, mounting up the toil and strife. But I'm a fool I'm a fool for you. I'm a fool for you. I'm a fool for you. Yes, I'll always be. And I claim it famously. Cause I'm a fool for you. It's a doggone shame. I don't know why I love you like a do When you're breaking my heart And you know it's true But I'm a fool for you I'm a fool for you I'm a fool for you I'm a fool Mighty Impressions uh, with the tune entitled I'm a Fool for You, uh, featuring uh, on uh, lead vocals. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Sunday, August uh, the 14th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, right now we want to move into a uh, report on the monkeypox uh, epidemic, uh, pandemic now. Uh, with thousands of cases and various geopolitical regions around the world. Uh, let's listen to this report. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. 
The first case of the current outbreak of monkeypox was identified in May 2022. And since then, the World Health Organization has been tracking cases around the world in countries that don't normally report the virus. The rising number of cases prompted the WHO to declare the virus a global health emergency in July. And with countries still recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic, this spike in monkeypox infections has raised concerns around the world. This week on the show, we ask what exactly the monkeypox virus is and why has this outbreak been so much more severe than in previous years. We also look at the stigma attached to the virus and Africa's preparedness to deal with another disease outbreak. I'm Penina Karibe. Welcome to Talk Africa. Scientists are baffled by the current outbreak of the virus in Europe and North America and the speed at which it's spreading. Prior to this outbreak, the US CDC considered this a rare disease with a low mortality rate. Before we begin our discussion, my colleague Benji Heyer brings us this report on the impact of the current outbreak. This is a significant move from the World Health Organization and this highest level of category is normally reserved for the sort of viruses like COVID-19, Ebola, the Zika virus, uh, and also polio. What it does is uh, raise alerts across the world that this virus is one that needs to be taken seriously and acknowledge that it requires a global response. Uh, and, and the reason that we should be noting all of this, of course, uh, is that um, there's potential for further um, outbreaks. And, and that's really the warning from the WHO, which is this could be the start of, of spreading elsewhere. It still notes uh, that the risk to uh, a global uh, outbreak uh, remains low and the risk to uh, interference of international travel in, in the same way there was during the coronavirus pandemic, that remains low too. Uh, that's because this virus is very different to the one that we're now familiar with, COVID-19. The first is that it, it's a much less efficient transmitter. It's not an STD, but it does spread mainly through contaminated services or through bodily fluids, through sexual intercourse, for example, predominantly thus far between the homosexual community. But it's important to remember, of course, that uh, same-sex relationships are still illegal in many countries around the world and therefore prejudice can act as a barrier to help. This is an outbreak that can be stopped with the right strategies in the right groups. It's therefore essential that all countries work closely with communities of men who have sex with men to design and deliver effective information and services and to adapt measures that protect the health, human rights and dignity of affected communities. Stigma and discrimination can be as dangerous as any virus. And there's something else to note too, which is that monkeypox is something for which the medical community has countermeasures already. Uh, the smallpox vaccine, whilst in short supply currently, is one that could also be used for this, and it offers 85% protection against monkeypox. Joining me now to take a closer look at what monkeypox is and why this outbreak has been so severe 
are from Brazzaville in Congo, Dr. Mary Stephen, the Africa Regional Technical Officer at the World Health Organization. From Pochettstrom, South Africa, we have Professor Jeffrey Mpahlele, the Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Research and Innovation at the Northwest University. He's also a virologist. And from Ibadan City in Nigeria, we have Professor Oyewale Tomori, President of the Nigerian Academy of Science and also former Vice-Chancellor of Redeemers University. Welcome everyone to the program. Dr. Stephen, I will begin with you because I want to start with the origins of this disease. I've heard that it has very little to do with monkeys. Yes, it was discovered in monkeys, and yes, it does infect monkeys, but apparently they're not the reservoir, the primary reservoir for the disease. So where did it originate from? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, monkeypox um, was dictated among research monkeys uh, in 1958, uh, but following that, cases the first human case was uh, dictated in the Democratic Republic of Congo in 1970, and since then we have been uh, uh, receiving reports of cases across uh, Western and Central African countries that are endemic uh, for the virus. So as it is right now, there are still uncertainties with regards to the natural history of uh, monkeypox and the exact reservoir of the virus it's still not uh, known yet, and so more research is needed. I believe uh, uh, Professor Jeffrey and Professor Tomori would add to this as well. But there are other animals that are susceptible to this uh, virus, like uh, squirrels, different types of squirrels, Gambian pouch rats, domice, and other uh, non-human primates, which of course include uh, apes, monkeys, and, and, and other animals. So, but the, the main reservoir for, for the virus is still unknown and more research is needed uh, to understand better. Right, so Professor Mpahlele coming to you, talk to us about how this disease is transmitted. Oh yes, um, and thanks for having me. Uh, so, uh, monkeypox um, um, disease uh, is transmitted uh, mainly through uh, close physical contact uh, with infected person. Uh, but the virus can actually be found um, on the um, mucous membrane um, of the eyes, um, the nose, as well as um, um, as well as the mouth. Uh, so, obviously, this means that um, some uh, respiratory secretions uh, can also transmit the virus, but largely uh, the virus is transmitted through uh, close physical contact um, with, uh, with an infected person. That is the main route of transmission, especially when the person is, um, is at a stage um, of, um, of the rash uh, or lesions, uh, because this is when the person is really uh, highly infectious. Right, and just to follow up on that, Professor Mpahlele, we're now hearing increasingly that there are uh, a lot more cases being detected amongst men who have sexual relations with men. Why is this? Well, um, it, it could be um, exactly because, um, you know, um, if uh, there is a close physical contact uh, between men who have sex with men, um, the virus can be transmitted. And uh, the other thing is that um, um, the, the, the virus uh, can be transmitted before lesions appear. Uh, so that is actually um, another danger because um, uh, quite often um, is the lesions that tell, that tell us that uh, you are infected with the virus. Uh, but without lesions, um, you remain 
clinically silent or asymptomatic and uh, it's not easy to tell uh, if you are infected. But I don't want to call it um, a virus that uh, is exclusively uh, transmitted um, you know, in men who have sex with men. Uh, it can just be transmitted uh, in anyone uh, who has got uh, close physical contact with, uh, um, with, with infected person. Okay. Uh, Professor Tomori, Nigeria is no stranger to, to, the, to this disease. In fact, I recall in 2017 there was an outbreak in the country. Uh, talk to us about the fatality rate of monkeypox. Just how dangerous is it? Well, first of all, uh, soon after DR Congo had the first human case in 1970, Nigeria had one in 19, two cases in 1971 and one in 1978. But then nothing happened in between until 2017 when we had the big epidemic, uh, which has been going on since then. There are two, what you call two clades of the virus. Uh, there's one, the West African type, and there's also the uh, Central African type, or Central and South African type. The one from the West Africa is less severe. Mortality is just about 1%, while the one in the South African and Central African region, which would take anything from... Cameroon down to, the, to South Africa will be in a range of about 10% mortality. It's a more severe infection than we have with the West African type. Uh, so, Prof, which is the one that we're now seeing being reported globally? The global one actually has been linked to the West African type. It has been suggested that uh, there have been a few importations of monkeypox from Nigeria to different countries, Israel, UK, uh, and even as far as Singapore. It is believed that the, what they're getting in UK now, or in the Western region now, actually was started from the 2017 one, which had been spreading unknown within the Western, uh, Western region, but then now amplified and escalated by the uh, male sex to, with male activities, following the um, uh, big, big festival that took place somewhere in Spain and some other places. Initially, when it, it happened and you have been popping up in different places, everybody was scared. What's happening? Is this another COVID? But then when it is now known that there was a common source of infection in which people went there and were now going back to their country, they became the source of those infections there. So now at least there's a little, with better understanding, we know how it came about. And just like uh, Jeffrey said, it requires deep, I mean, a real close contact. And of course, there's nothing more more of contact and direct contact than sexual relationship. So, Dr. Stephen, coming to you, like you said, when you're talking about the origins of this disease, monkeypox is not new. It was discovered in the late 1950s, and yet it's only now that we have the World Health Organization declaring it a global health emergency. Why the concern now, after all these decades of having this disease in the continent? Yes, um, so the mechanism under the international re uh, health regulations for declaration of public health of, uh, of uh, international concern, it, it, it's a public health event uh, that is extraordinary in nature, uh, but also poses the risk of threat to other countries and requires a coordinated international response. Um, if, if, if you look at the data, 
or concerning what is happening with regards to the monkeypox, we have more than 19,000 cases globally in more than 78 countries. So you can see that it has spread to so, so, so many countries. And part of the things, like Prof. Tomori just said, is because of these new uh, ways that the, the, the virus is spreading among men who have sex uh, with men, especially in countries that are non-endemic and they have not reported monkeypox monkey uh, virus before in the Europe, uh, in the United States as well as uh, uh, in, in, in Canada. And for us in Africa, what we need is to leverage this momentum to ramp up our prevention and control measures for this disease that has been neglected for decades on the continent. Right. So, Professor Tomori, coming to you, we've had several states in the U.S., declare a state of emergency in a bit to try and curb this, this, this breakout. But talk to us about how a full-blown outbreak of monkeypox would look like and how best would that be dealt with? Uh, thank you very much. I, I think we also must be kind of careful about this issue of declaration of state of emergency. I wanted to talk on that before we go into it because there's a lot of lesson for us in Africa about that. The declaration of, of public health of international emergency uh, to me, was too late for Africa, or even too late for Europe itself. It came at a time when Europe had taken decision on what to do. We're not waiting for WHO to declare a fake. Unfortunately, we in Africa, we wait for WHO to take action before. Oh. Before anything becomes an international emergency, it is first a national emergency. And that's where I think Africa should come in, not wait for WHO to declare an international. When it has ravaged us for the last 30, 40 years, I think that's the lesson, I think, for us in Africa to learn. Now, what does a full-blown thing do? Once you introduce, I mean, you identify the case, you isolate the case, and you keep, uh, reduce contact, it's not really a major problem. I mean, let's, let's, be, let's, be, let, let's talk about this. Of all the cases we are getting in Europe, we are finding 99% of them are associated with the same individuals who had it from the beginning. So it's that direct contact. If you limit the contact, if you identify as quickly as possible, limit the contact, you can actually, this, this is a self-limiting disease. And the panic we are getting around the world is because we have not done the right thing. Rolling out vaccine is not the solution to it. Rolling out, I mean, what you need is proper good surveillance, good identification as little as possible, isolation of the, of the cases, re reducing direct contact between people. And you can leave this problem in the body. But let's face it directly so that we know where we're going and not going to the panic that we're getting all over the world now. Right. Uh, Dr. Stephen, let me get back to you. We listened to uh, Professor Mpahlele talk to us about the similarities of this current outbreak with the previous ones and also the differences. And what I'd like to know is what do scientists at this particular moment know about this outbreak and what are they still trying to find out? Yes, so as we mentioned earlier, there are still quite a, a lot of uh, unknowns around uh, this outbreak that is uh, presenting in a different way from, from what we used to know. Um, first of all, like I said, the, 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 the transmission among people, men who have sex uh, with men, that needs to be understood. The main reservoir for the virus, we still don't know. So this uh, needs to be understood as well. And the, the mechanism with which it is now spreading to this new uh, means of transmission needs uh, better understanding. So there are still a lot of research 
to do to have um, answers to some of these questions. Uh, but of course, uh, this issue of uh, the vaccine that is available that was previously used for, for monkeypox, the antiviral treatment, all this uh, we will need further uh, uh, research in these areas as well to explore more options that could be available to the world for, for the prevention and control of, of this monkeypox uh, virus. But when you find um, infection outside these endemic countries, it's normally linked to travel to these endemic countries. But now, like uh, for summary said earlier, it's possible that it was, it was uh, um, introduced into this population and was spreading slowly, and uh, the world didn't know about it until um, the cases just uh, became so much within this special group of people. And then uh, uh, that's what uh, actually stimulated this um, uh, uh, um, increased action for, for this uh, monkeypox uh, outbreak. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll take a closer look at Africa's preparedness for widespread disease outbreaks. Stay with us. Welcome back to Talk Africa. So with me are Dr. Mary Stephen, Professor Jeffrey Mpahlele, and Professor Oyewale Tomori. Now before the break, we looked at what monkeypox is and some reasons why its spread uh, has been so rampant. So let's now look at how prepared Africa is to deal with the disease outbreaks. And I'll come to you, uh, Professor Tomori, because you said something that was very important just before we went to the break. You said that Africa doesn't have to wait until the World Health Organization declares a global health emergency for it to take action. So the question is, how prepared is the continent for, for this pandemic? And not just this uh, monkeypox pandemic, but just any other. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I, I'm glad you, you brought that up because to me, it is a lesson we learn from this that is more important. Any disease anywhere that is neglected will spread everywhere. Africa, monkeypox came with us 1970, right from 1920 in the 80s. Uh, DR Congo has been having thousands of cases. Then Nigeria came in 2017, and apparently, you know, we, we kept quiet and we didn't do anything about it. And until now, the, the behavior general change is bringing it up, amplifying the situation. We didn't have to wait for that. And I made a mention of the fact that the U.S. did not wait for WHO to declare an emergency before they decided to out the vaccine in their stock. So we in Africa, you know, need to look at our own. We first, this is a national emergency before it becomes international. It is time for us to begin to prepare and not wait for anything. Our country is done and we have the resources. We have the people. It's just putting our priorities right, putting the money in the right place, and we can be better. We just finished with the COVID, COVID-19. Well, why, why, why should, I mean, we should be much better prepared. How many laboratories in Africa can test for monkeypox? There are not that many, even after all the laboratories we've built up for COVID. These are some of the issues. How do we sustain the things we have built so that not every disease outbreak comes in, we start from beginning again? Sustaining, I mean, getting funding to sustain this without waiting for external aid. Uh, the questions that have been raised, for example, wh where is the host? Where is the national reservoir of, of monkeypox? 
It has been with us for 50 years. We don't know. And how much does it cost us to go into the field and find out what it is? We are waiting for Europe to come and do that for us. That's not what it should be. Professor Mpahlele, listening to Professor Tumori talk about Africa having the resources, Africa having lived with this disease for 50 years, and still not much progress has been made in terms of just even basically discovering more about this disease. And so the question is, how much is Africa investing in research, in training, in partnership even with other communities, the international community, for instance, to just move this forward? That is actually the problem, uh, because um, if you look at... Um, um, our investment um, in research um, as, as um, a comparison of um, GDP um, is not ideal uh, at this stage. And um, it's not just about one country. I think uh, multiple countries um, are, are culprits uh, on this. Uh, but um, the most important thing uh, is that um, the African countries should uh, scale up capacity uh, to detect infectious diseases, uh, not just, uh, you know, to be in a reactive mode uh, when you have got a particular infectious disease, uh, but uh, be able to have capacity. To a certain extent, I think uh, Africa uh, CDC has helped um, to build capacity regionally um, to, to try and uh, scale up you know, labor laboratory detection of infectious diseases. But um, you, you, you need each and every country uh, to be able to have capacity uh, to detect infectious diseases. Because um, without laboratory capacity, we will always be caught uh, flat-footed uh, because most of the infectious diseases, um, the diagnosis, yes, you can do it clinically, uh, but confirmation is usually uh, through laboratory diagnosis. So that is really key. And then the second thing is to invest in research uh, so that um, the diseases which are more common, endemic, and prevalent uh, in Africa, we are able to study them. Uh, in detail. Um, for example, we had uh, the monkeypox virus for many, many years, as um, uh, Prof. Tomori indicated, uh, but still uh, we, 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 we just don't have a clear understanding uh, in terms of um, the different um, uh, species of animals that are infected by this uh, virus and what is actually um, the reservoirs. Uh, so we can do these things uh, if we have got um, um, enough capacity. Uh, in terms of um, uh, funding and also in terms of um, human capital uh, to conduct the, the research. So, so I think um, um, the answer is not going to be um, in one area. Um, and, and we have seen with COVID-19 uh, that um, we tend to talk about the things that we know we should be doing, but we are not doing. All right. Let's talk about vaccines. Dr. Stephen, we've been hearing of smallpox vaccines being used against monkeypox. My question is, do we have vaccines manufactured specifically for monkeypox? And if yes, are there enough? Yeah, so with regards to uh, vaccine, it's still the, the um, smallpox vaccine, the MVABN that was used previously for smallpox, a newer generation that has been approved for, for the prevention of uh, monkeypox. Uh, virus and and this is uh, currently available in in the global north uh, but not available for us uh, on the continent in Africa as uh, we we have discussed previously 
uh, Africa has not really used um, monkeypox vaccines for for uh, um, prevention and control of uh, this uh, monkeypox uh, outbreak. It, 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 it's definitely not available to us. We didn't have it in our in our national stock. But in addition to the vaccine, like uh, Prof. Elia said, we need to use the, the public health tools that are available to us: surveillance, the issue of lab clinical care, risk communication, to make sure that um, we are responding uh, to this outbreak at the appropriate level, but also continuing to build national capacity for uh, prevention and control of uh, different infectious diseases. So, Professor Mpahlele, uh, building up on what Professor Tomori is talking about, building capacity, uh, looking inwards, not outwards, where do we start from? I mean, this is a disease like we've been talking about that's been in this continent for five decades minimum. It is a zoonotic yes. disease and we understand the relationship that exists between Africans and animals in the continent. So where do we begin and is it possible to completely eradicate it? No, no, no. Um, maybe to start with the, the last question. Um, you can't eradicate a disease like um, uh, monkeypox, especially when you don't know there is a voice. But the most important thing is that uh, monkeypox is a zoonotic uh, disease. In other words, uh, is a disease that is found in animals uh, and transmissible to humans. Uh, so um, there's no way that uh, you can eradicate it, you can contain it, you can eliminate it. Uh, but um, obviously uh, you need uh, public health measures, including uh, laboratory capacity uh, to identify cases and then, and, and then uh, be able to isolate the cases and, uh, and, and, and cut the transmission um, to other uh, members in the community. So where do we start uh, building capacity? We do have centers of excellence um, when it comes to capacity in Africa, um, in different regions of Africa. Um, so you can, you, can, you, can, you can strengthen these centers of excellence uh, to make sure that uh, they are able to provide um, capacity to other countries that do not necessarily have capacity. Uh, but the most important thing is that um, uh, for every region in Africa, you should have a center of excellence or a couple of centers of excellence that are able to detect uh, various infectious diseases that are prevalent in Africa. So that when you have got an outbreak, um, you know exactly where to go um, to, to identify um, you know, the, 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 the agent involved uh, instead of um, um, just you know, being passive and, um, and waiting for the problem to build up uh, to a level when, where it becomes... Uh, unmanageable, and, and then only at that stage uh, you intervene. So, Professor Tomori, let's talk about stigma because this is a big talking point now that the world is talking about tackling a monkeypox. For instance, it's been labeled an African disease. So, how do we raise public awareness around this disease without repeating those mistakes that we saw in the early days of HIV and AIDS? I, I think here both of us come in the, the so called educated people and the media. We need to you know, counter any false information with facts. We need to get back to the basic. For example, the monkeys that got infected first were actually imported from Singapore, not from Africa. So, like I was telling somebody, if I was a monkey, I'd probably protest also. But that's a different story. And then, any of all the other diseases that have been happening, the situation about the stigma, I think names don't stick is disease that kill and therefore we should not put emphasis on what names they are calling yeah but counter those 
falsehood with facts. And we see now what is happening that with the situation that is spreading, uh, it is spreading. We made a mistake during uh, HIV. We were battling with, oh no, this is a stigma. Why the disease was spreading among us? Let's tell our people, this is the information. Whatever thing that is coming, you remember when the whole story about monkeypox came, the pictures they were showing, even though the cases were happening in Europe, the pictures they were showing was the, was the face of, uh, of an African. And I actually challenged one of them and I said, look, the, the pox is your own pox. Why are you showing the picture of an African child when all the pox cases are happening in the West? And then everybody kind of kept quiet. We also need to know in Africa, I keep, I keep raising that point, we have the resources, we have the talent, we have the people. If we do our, spend our money well, we can solve our own problem with little help from outside. And we can sustain you know, the, the, the building up what we have. So again, the message to it is get proper information. Work together with the scientists and the media and get that information to our people in the right way and the right language. Thank you very much, Professor Tamori. All right, and that's all for this edition of Talk Africa. A very big thank you to all our guests, Dr. Mary Stephen, the Africa Regional Technical Officer of the World Health Organization, Professor Jeffrey Mpahlele, Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Research and Innovation at the Northwest University, and Professor Oyewale Tomori, the President of the Nigerian Academy of Science and former Vice-Chancellor of Redeemers University. Remember, you can be a part of this conversation online through our social media handles on Facebook and Twitter. You can also catch the show on our YouTube playlist to keep the conversation going. And join us again next week for more Talk Africa. From me, Penina Karibe, and the TNK Nairobi. Until next time, it's goodbye. Welcome back, and uh, that was a report on uh, the origin and spread of uh, monkeypox. And are uh, you listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast for uh, Sunday, August 14th, uh, 2022? Uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, we'll take a musical break, and we'll be back with our concluding segment, uh, also dealing uh, with public health.
Central Africa region with 12%, Western Africa region also with 12%, Southern Africa region with 10 Eastern Africa region with 9% of those new cases during AP Week um, 31. When we look in detail at those 14,000 new cases, the following countries have the highest numbers of cases, that is Tunisia with 4,581, Morocco with 1,644, Burundi with 1,487, Libya with 808, and Algeria with 800. When we look at the highest daily incidence per million population, the following five countries had the highest numbers. Seychelles with 616 per million population, Libya 16, Burundi 17, Cabo Verde 13, and the Gambia nine cases per million population per day. During Epidemic 31, a total of 99 new deaths were reported in Africa, which is a 40% decrease from the previous week. When we look at the four-week trend analysis, and this is the AP week starting from um, the period starting from 11th of July to the 7th of August, this is the situation in Africa. We document an overall 28% average decrease in new cases over this four-week period. And by regional breakdown, we see that there was an 18% increase in the Central African region. 31% decrease for region, for Southern Africa region, 7% decrease for Eastern Africa region, and 4% decrease for Western Africa region. When we look at the breakdown by the most populous countries uh, during this period, Nigeria documented a 4% average increase. Kenya, 36% average decrease. Ethiopia, 28% average decrease. South Africa, 19% average decrease. DRC, 13% average decrease. And Egypt, there was no change. During the same period, there, there was an overall 16% average decrease in the number of new deaths that were reported on the continent, broken down as following by region. 21% increase in the Western uh, Africa region during these four weeks. 6% average increase in the Eastern Africa region. 24% decrease in the Southern Africa region. 13% decrease in the Central Africa region. And 9% decrease in the Northern Africa region during this four-week period. When we look it um, by the most populous countries over the period. We see Nigeria with a 75% average decrease, Ethiopia 43% average decrease, South Africa 30% decrease, DRC 25% decrease, Kenya 19% decrease, and Egypt there was no change. Let's move to uh, the testing situation uh, on the continent. To date, 
um, 120,185,169 COVID-19 tests have been conducted in, uh, in Africa since the pandemic started. Over 550,000 new tests were reported during this AP Week 31, that is 1 to 7 August 2022. This represents a 37% increase when compared to the previous week when we documented 402,019 tests. For this same AP Week, we saw the positivity rate um, being uh, 3%, while the test per, test per case ratio was 39%. This represents um, 73% decrease in the positivity rate, while um, giving a 99% increase in the test per case ratio when compared to the previous period. Two countries are reporting a test positivity rate that is higher than 12% in this week, and that is Libya and Tunisia. For COVID-19 vaccine, as of the 10th of August 2022, the situation in Africa is as follows. 925 million COVID-19 vaccine doses have been made available in Africa to 54 member states. Those doses that have been administered to date is 653 million, which gives um, 71% um, uh, of the total supply that has been made available to Africa has been administered. The coverage of the total population for those who are fully vaccinated is now at 21.1% for Africa. The same 10 countries are still, um, as given last week, are still holding um, the top 10 positions, and that is Seychelles at 81.3%, Mauritius at 76.6%, Rwanda at 76.5%, and this is an increase from last week, Morocco at 61.9%. Uh, it is an increase from last week. Botswana, 61.7%. Uh, again, an increase from last week. Cabo Verde at 55.2%. Tunisia, 52.8%. Sao Tome and Principe at 44.5%. Another increase from last week. Liberia at 44.1%. And Mozambique at 44%. Uh, when we look at the deliverables uh, through the AVAT uh, mechanism, as of 7th of August, we had delivered 74,033,500 doses of vaccine across 35 African Union member states. When we break this down, we see that 48.7 million um, were purchased by the member states themselves and came through the AVAT mechanism. 17.9 um, million uh, were purchased through uh, the Saving Lives and Livelihoods program, um, supported by the MasterCard Foundation, and 7.3 million our donations uh, from the U.S. government that came through the AVAT mechanism. 
In the last one week, we have supplied an additional 151,200 doses of the injured to Namibia. Having looked at um, <clears throat> the situation of COVID-19 on the continent, I would now like to give you an update of the other uh, outbreaks that are significant uh, and we are following here on the continent. I'll give you five today. Um, monkeypox in uh, many countries, Rift Valley fever in Uganda, Lassa fever, cholera, and measles, again, in multiple countries. For monkeypox, as of the 10th of August, we had documented um, 31,800 cases across 89 countries globally. And um, when we look at the African continent, we see that cumulatively from the beginning of this year, we have documented 2,947 cases um, in 11 African countries uh, with a case fatality rate of 3.5%, having reported 104 deaths during this period. Um, when we look at... Um, uh, the period since the last briefing, we have documented 136 new cases and one new death uh, from um, the DRC and Nigeria. The, the new death was from Nigeria. Uh, the DRC during this period um, has reported 56 new uh, cases and no deaths, while Nigeria has reported 24 new cases um, confirmed, 56 suspected, and one new death. Since the beginning of the year, a total of 417 samples have been analyzed, uh, of which 157 were positive for monkeypox, uh, giving us a test positivity of 38%, um, and only the West African CLAD has been reported in Nigeria as so far. Uh, last week, we did, um, there may be some monkeypox vaccinations that are going on uh, in the DRC. Uh, the correct situation is that there is uh, currently uh, a clinical trials that are going on uh, in the DRC um, for um, uh, um, a vaccine that is um, under emergency use authorization uh, called uh, Genius, and it is not uh, monkeypox vaccination uh, that is going on uh, in the DRC. To date, there are no vaccines that we have received as Africa um, for uh, monkeypox, though we continue to engage with uh, relevant institutions and uh, um, our uh, partners across the world to try and get monkeypox vaccines um, here uh, to the continent. Um, as Africa CDC to support um, our member states, we have continued to build the capacity of uh, the different countries uh, for uh, laboratory diagnoses and uh, uh, surveillance uh, so that uh, the index of suspicion is high. Uh, we are also organizing um, uh, clinical management uh, capacity building sessions um, which will improve 
um, the way in which our clinicians handle uh, monkeypox cases when they are um, uh, documented or identified. The second outbreak on the continent is Rift Valley Fever, which at the moment, thankfully, is only um, in uh, Uganda. Um, and the outbreak has been confirmed uh, through laboratory uh, diagnosis. Two confirmed cases um, have been uh, identified and one death has been reported, giving a case fatality rate of 50%. We are working very closely with the Ugandan uh, ministries of health and those of agriculture um, in the affected uh, areas uh, so as to provide the support that is required for Rift Valley fever in Uganda. In preparation, however, we are also supporting the surrounding uh, countries uh, so that uh, we are able uh, to quickly identify if at all a case is also seen um, within the neighboring countries. The third today is Lassa fever, which has affected uh, several countries, particularly in the western side um, of Africa. To date, um, we have in seven countries on the continent uh, with the total number of deaths of 186, giving us a case fatality rate of 2 0.7%. Since the last briefing, additional 107 new cases have been documented, and unfortunately, two new deaths have also been reported um, uh, from uh, Liberia. Nigeria has reported 100 suspected cases from uh, within the country, while Liberia has reported two new confirmed cases of Lassa fever, and unfortunately, the two new deaths have also been reported from Liberia. As Africa CDC, we continue to work with um, uh, the countries that are affected. At the moment, we have seven countries that are affected, and we continue to provide them with support to ensure that uh, we are working to minimize the risk of spread of Lassa fever from areas where the, the outbreak is occurring, which are areas where it is endemic. The fourth Outbreak we are dealing with is a multi-country cholera outbreak. Uh, since the last briefing, we have documented 481 new cases and 12 new deaths, giving us a case fatality rate of 2.7% for this period. Um, and the cases um, have been from Cameroon, Malawi, uh, and South Sudan. Uh, uh, and in these from the beginning of the year we have documented 33,000 unfortunately lost 484 giving us a case fatality rate of about um, uh, just over 1.5% finally is um, the measles outbreak since the last briefing 107 new cases have been reported with no new deaths um, and the new cases have been reported from Cameroon and the Central Africa Republic. Cumulatively, from the beginning of the year, we have seen 162,782 cases and 1,500 deaths, which gives us just around 1% case fatality rate, and 23 countries have been affected. We are working with these countries to ensure 
that um, uh, spread is minimized and uh, as appropriate um, uh, vaccination and case management is handled um, in, an, in a proper way uh, to reduce chances of, uh, of further spread. So, uh, Wayne, this is what we had for um, our um, journalists today and uh, happy to take questions. Back to you. Thank you very, very much, Ahmed, for that uh, comprehensive breakdown. And I see already colleagues have started putting their hands up. Uh, but before I call upon you to ask your questions, let me just uh, send out that WhatsApp number again. It is a plus 251-94-550-2310. That is a plus 251-94-550-2310. So today let's start by going online and uh, calling upon Ashley Furlong who um, has a hand up. Um, Ashley, perhaps just tell us, start by telling us your news agency and then go ahead and ask your question. Hello, Ashley. Ashley? Hello, can you ask a question? Yes, please. Just tell us your news agency and then go ahead. Wonderful. I'm from Politico Europe. Um, My question is about um, the availability of uh, monkeypox vaccines. Could you provide any more detail on those negotiations? Um, And has the vaccine manufacturer, Bavaria Nordic, um, said that they don't have stock available? Just any more information about um, the difficulties in accessing those monkeypox doses? Thank you very much. Um, thank you. Thank you very much, Ashley. And um, uh, we can't give too many details when um, we have not reached an agreement. And these are the, the rules of negotiations. Uh, what we can tell you is um, that um, there are very advanced uh, discussions with at least two of our partners. And uh, we are really looking forward to, at some point, being able to give you some uh, some good news. But at this stage, we are not able to... Uh, give you details of names and uh, um, uh, this um, we'll only be able to give at the end of uh, the discussions uh, depending on how the results have have come through. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ahmed. Colleagues, you can also send in your questions through the question and answer section um, as well as through the WhatsApp number that I gave you. Uh, Promet, please tell us your news agency and then ask your question. Hi, am I audible? Yes, we can hear you very well. Okay, thank you, Vine, and uh, thank you, Dr. Ahmed, for taking out the time. As usual, every week we get to hear from you. Uh, my question, I am from Reuters uh, in South Africa, Johannesburg. My question is actually on Aspen. Around two weeks back, uh, Dr. Ahmed, you had said that you are in detailed discussions with a lot of potential buyers for Aspen's own branded vaccine, the Aspenovax. So I wanted to understand what is the current status on that and is there some kind of a timeline that you can share with us? No, thank you, Promit. Discussions still continue. Timelines are very difficult to give because um, uh, we don't control um, the the feedback responses uh, that we get from uh, those that we are discussing with, Uh, but uh, those discussions do continue. We are quite hopeful that... um, we will be able to get 
um, uh, some positive results out of the nego- negotiations that are continuing. We are very hopeful for that. But uh, unfortunately, we can't give you timelines uh, at this time. All right. Um, thank you very much. I don't see any questions coming through. Uh, perhaps to give our colleagues time, um, a minute or so to formulate their questions. Uh, perhaps Ahmed, if there's just hold on, let me see. Promit's hand is still up. Promit, do you have a, a follow-up question? Yes, can I ask one more question, please? Yes, please. Okay, uh, Dr. Ahmed also wanted to ask you that considering the amount of, uh, I mean, the uh, vaccination rate of uh, uh, for COVID that is going on in Africa, what kind of stock of vaccines do you currently have? And in terms of the pipeline, how much of do you expect that that kind of a stock can meet the demand for the next a uh, few months. If you can no, give a clarity on that. No, thanks. The situation is very different from one country to another. The good news is we push uh, for uh, mass vaccination that we've been uh, uh, holding across the continent uh, through our Saving Lives and Livelihoods uh, initiative. Uh, we are getting uh, countries asking for more vaccines um, because the stocks within those countries are running low. Uh, vaccination uh, is, is not as high, then we still have stock. And we still have the countries uh, keeping stock within uh, uh, their own jurisdiction. So the situation is very mixed. The countries where um, vaccination rates is increasing, they're asking for more. The countries where vaccination rates are still relatively slow, uh, those um, uh, are not yet asking. So giving a global uh, Africa-wide picture will be quite complex because it may send the wrong message. But um, uh, the message I would like you to have is that uh, we are pushing for um, uh, mass vaccination. And where we are pushing for mass vaccination, we are seeing new uptake of uh, more vaccines uh, by those uh, particular countries. So we are very uh, encouraged uh, by that sign. And, um, we know that as we roll out in many more countries, we are going to have even more um, uh, requests for additional uh, vaccines. And those who have asked... Welcome back. And uh, those were excerpts uh, from a briefing from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in um, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And, of course, there was some difficulty... Uh, with the audio uh, from that uh, previous uh, segment. Uh, We apologize uh, for distortion uh, in some aspects of it. And uh, we're going to be winding down our program uh, for today, uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. And uh, we've been broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Uh, once again, uh, to the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to be closing out with the music of Oscar Peterson Trio with uh, Ella Fitzgerald on vocals, uh, playing in Amsterdam in 1957. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. We're happy to be back in Amsterdam for our annual concert, 
And for those of you that have seen our show before, it will be as customary. We will have two parts to the concert. The first part will be the Oscar Peterson Trio, and then Roy Eldridge and Joe Jones. And after the intermission, the second set will be Stuff Smith, and then Miss Ella Fitzgerald. I would like now to introduce the members of the Oscar Peterson Trio. Our guitarist is Herb Ellis. And the musician who's generally considered to be the best bass player in jazz today, Ray Brown. Say what you want. And finally, I'm sure all of you who've ever seen our show will recognize the great pianist Oscar Peterson. Oscar Peterson Trio.
Thank <laughs> you.